Greetings to you on February the 9th, 2012. Hope you're doing well. Uh, hope you enjoyed our uh, speakers this past month. We pulled in some ringers uh, who are experts in mission. And I know you've enjoyed them, and I've heard you talk about uh, Dan Burns and Larry Lloyd. And I appreciate very much their teaching you. Uh, we come to Acts chapter 15 today, and it's really a very important turning point in the book of Acts and in the history of the church. And it all starts with controversy. And what's so interesting uh, is that many of us just, we, we really hate conflict and we hate controversy. Uh, we would do anything to avoid it. And I'm sure that uh, there are many good things about that. Some of, some of us are too quick to jump into controversy and conflicts and we're causing problems all the time. But what we find in conflict often is the opportunity to display the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. We have an opportunity to display our character. We also have an opportunity to make a statement about what we believe. And if you look at the history of the church and the, what we call the seven great ecumenical councils in the early church that established uh, some of the doctrine that is inferential from the scriptures, for the church ever since then, they all basically came from controversy. We have ecumenical councils because uh, there's controversy in the church and we need to settle an issue, either theologically or practically. Usually it's theological. Well, today what we have is the first ecumenical council, the first of these seven. And it was caused uh, by a severe controversy, one that plagued the church over and over again. We have controversies in our day. And of course, we don't welcome those controversies. We don't welcome the conflict. But what happens when the conflict comes is the church has an obligation and an opportunity to teach, to build the unity of the church, and actually to strengthen the church through it. The church and its doctrine is constantly under attack. This is what we must remember. And of course, it's painful. Of course, it's socially uh, awkward many times, socially awkward, politically awkward. Uh, it it uh, divides even sometimes families. But when we face those controversies successfully, we're actually moving the gospel forward, not only in our generation, but in the generation to come. And I know I'm speaking all, to all men this morning, and it's especially important for men, I think, who should be leading in their homes, who should be leading in many ways, and especially, I think, in these issues in the church. We'll see that these men gather and seek to resolve a very important difference among them. So let's read Acts 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 35. We'll see what the controversy is. We'll see how the Jerusalem Council handled it and how they actually delivered the message. Let's look at Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord 
with many others also. Amen. Okay, let's look at these first five verses, first of all. And we learn this, that spiritual leaders must confront theological challenges. Spiritual leaders must confront theological challenges. Brothers, you cannot be a spiritual leader without biblical and theological training. I I don't mean seminary. I don't mean Bible college. I just mean in the church, being trained in your Bibles and being trained in theology. If you want to be a leader in the church, you're going to have to devote yourself to study. I'm so glad you're here. This is one thing we need to be doing as men. If we're going to be functional leaders in the church, we need to be studying the Bible. Why? Well, we'll see why in just a moment. But gentlemen, really, it's true in your home too. If you're going to really be the leader of your home, if your children are going to look to you for guidance, if they're going to have good guidance from you, you need to study the Bible and theology. And I can just tell you after uh, 37 years or so of child rearing, uh, five of them, that I'm challenged all the time, even to this day, with my deepest theological convictions, and my children are Christians. But they come across various issues and situations in their churches, in their workplace, in their families. And sometimes they'll call Papa and ask for uh, uh, some input on this. And all the training that I've ever had all comes to the fore every time I'm encountering a leadership situation. In your workplace, uh, you're respecting people of all religions. Uh, You're not misusing your work time in order to do your evangelism. However, every time you make a decision, it's got to come out of the deepest wells of your being. I mean, even the smallest decision is based on a deep foundation of learning about the Bible and theology, things you've learned in church, things you learned at your mother's knee when you had family devotions. All of this is extremely important. So leaders must be willing and ready to confront theological challenges. Now, if, if you haven't had formal training, of course, there'll be those moments when you feel like I'm dabbling in things I don't feel like I know that much about. I understand that. Uh, I make comments on certain things, and you know I have to apologize all the time because if I make, uh, for example, last Sunday, if I'm teaching about healing, I have to acknowledge I'm not a doctor and I don't know medical science and arts very well, but I'll just do my, the best I can. But if I'm studying Jesus Christ, it requires that I learn something about medicine because he was very interested in the physical body. Well, you must do the same. You can always apologize that you're not formally trained or let people know that you're not putting yourself forward as the Pope or the world's expert, but but you're someone who actually has looked into these things to the best of your ability. You have a growing opinion. You're open to changing your mind, but this is the best you've been able to learn to this point. That's what we must all be able to do because challenges are going to come from every direction in every realm where you lead. Every realm where you lead. If you're raising teenagers, there's no way you can raise teenagers properly without theological reflection. I'm serious. Because they'll present you some unbelievable situations and you're having to make decisions. And of course, it takes wisdom uh, that's that's spirit-given, but it's got to be rooted in God's Word. And if she asks you, why can't I do this or why should I do that? You can just simply say, you know, I was reading in the Scriptures the other day. And this is what was laid out before me, honey. And, and I'm a man under orders. I'm not the boss. The Lord Jesus Christ is the boss. And I'm, I'm trying to learn his voice and bring it into practice into every realm where I serve. Spiritual leaders must confront theological challenges. Now, especially in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that leaders must defend the gospel. 
of all the theological things that we know, the core of it all is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. It's the gospel. And we find summaries of that gospel in various places. Acts 15, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, you find a summary in the first four or five verses. In Romans 3, you find a summary of the gospel. You find a summary in Jesus' own proclamation. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. There's a summary of the gospel. So we take all these summaries of the gospel that we know along with everything else the Bible says about the core of Christian uh, biblical teaching and we must learn to defend it. You'll find in Paul's ministry, you'll find it certainly here in Acts that you not only proclaim the gospel but then you defend it. Paul goes into the synagogues. We've already seen this in chapters 13 and 14. He goes into the synagogues. He presents the gospel. Then he gets questioned from friend and foe alike. And the real learning comes as some people hear Paul argue and defend his presentation. So you make a presentation, but then you have to take the Q&A. And I just don't think it's very reasonable for us to think that we can share the gospel with our neighbor, share the gospel with our workmate, and then not interact with him on the legitimate questions that he has or the legitimate or illegitimate challenges that he has to the gospel. So we've got to learn to defend the gospel. And the way to do that, I find, is, for example, those of us here at Second Presbyterian, we had a wonderful apologist uh, from Oxford, England, come in just a few weeks ago, Michael Ramsden, and he defends the gospel. He tells us how he defends it. And I learned a lot from listening to him. How do we interact with people who are challenging the gospel? He goes to university crowds, and, and as he taught us, uh, he even has been to the Taliban on several occasions to present the gospel. They want someone to come in and give a cogent presentation so they would know how to interact with the gospel and how to defeat the gospel. And, of course, what happened was several of them got led to Christ. Uh, it's pretty tough uh, sharing the gospel when someone's got an AK-47 pointed at you, but that's what he did. And so you listen to other apologists and how they handle the gospel under stressful circumstances. And you learn how to do it. But we must learn how to present the gospel and how to defend it. Why? Well, verse 1 teaches us, and this is number 1 on your outline, heresies will arise. Heresies will arise. The gospel is precious. The gospel turns the world upside down. The gospel is eventually going to bring every believer to bow his knee and profess with his tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the devil hates that. So the devil's number one strategy in defeating the kingdom of Jesus Christ is to defeat the gospel in your life and in the, the lives of those around you. You just have to realize that is under major attack. It always will be until Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. That's going to be his number one target. And because you're the believer in the gospel, his target is on you. You've got a big bullseye right in your chest. So don't be surprised, don't be dismayed, and don't be slow to respond. In number two, in verse 2a, you see leaders must respond. So in verse 1, if we back up for a moment, some men came down from Judea. That would be, of course, the, the, uh, the precinct surrounding Jerusalem. And they were teaching the brothers. They were teaching the church that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the, the heresy that Paul was dealing with. They were saying, they were saying uh, in effect, you do need Jesus Christ. Please listen to the apostles and the elders. You do need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Having received him, you also need to be circumcised 
and to obey the fundamental laws of Moses. So basically what these folks from Judea were saying, these were called the Judaizers or the party of the Pharisees. These were Pharisees who had become church people. They become Christians. And they were saying that if you're going to become a Christian, you really must come into ancient Israel. Now, there's a sense of which that's correct. But what they meant by Israel was all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and become like ethnic national Israel, not theological spiritual Israel, but ethnic national Israel. So if you're going to be a Christian, you must fundamentally become a Jew because all on the line for 2,000 years, a Gentile who wanted to be saved had to be a proselyte, had to receive the ablutions or the washings of the rabbis and then be circumcised and become a member of Israel as a Gentile, much like Ruth the Moabitess. She she wasn't circumcised, obviously, but she became part of Israel. She married into the nation and became one of them. And this is how the leaders of the families, the men, became part of Israel. They were circumcised. This is what the Judaizers were saying. They were saying this is the way it's always been and it's the way it's got to be now. And there's a certain plausibility to it. But let me tell you what else there is. There is in this heresy a continuing heresy that has gone on for 2,000 years and was 2,000 years before that and will continue to go on. And the heresy is I want to have some participation in the grace of God. I want to be a contributor to my own salvation. That's where this is all coming from. Every religion in the world except for gracious Christianity is based on your performance, something you think or you do or some ritual that you keep. Every single one of the religions. We have some missionaries here today. They can tell you from their continents, everywhere that they are, that's the rule of the game. Whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Judaism, all of them are based on performance according to some standard. And there's a certain plausibility to that. That's the way the fallen human mind naturally thinks. Gracious Christianity, the Christianity based upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ taught in the New Testament is the only religion that is solely based on what someone else did on your behalf. It's the only religion. And it makes no sense to the other religions. I've talked with them. And they say, that makes no sense that someone else would live the life that you were supposed to live. I understand that apart from regeneration, it makes no sense. But brothers, that is the gospel. And you're going to have to defend it. You present it, it sounds like foolishness to every other religious mind in the world. But it is the wisdom of God. And here's why it's the wisdom of God. In every one of those religions, in every one of those men's minds who set up a standard by which they're going to be measured, Paul says in Romans 2 and 3, every one of them have flunked. Talk about foolishness. Have a religion where everybody fails. And that's exactly what Paul says. They're all condemned. Every mouth is shut. Whether you live by your own conscience or you try to live by the sacred laws of Moses, in both cases, you flunked. Now, there's foolishness. And the wisdom of God is that you pass with flying colors because he sent one to die in your place. If you're going to be a Christian and you're going to lead and you're going to influence people, you're going to have to interact with the entire thinking of a world that thinks the gospel is foolish. And there's no way to lead apart from that. And here what we have in this case, the heresy is technically called legalism. That is, you are saved by your conformity to legal standards. 
That's legalism. Or you're saved by your conformity to the law. Now, there are, uh, there are in uh, Judaism and in uh, perversions of Christianity, uh, no versions I know of that say that uh, God has nothing to do with it, that it's all completely you. Now, here's what usually happens is they want to merge the grace of God with your performance. That's what they all do. It's called syncretism. They synchronize uh, God's grace with your performance. And that's what this heresy is. And it's legalism, that you're contributing something. Oh, yes, God is gracious. And these Judaizers would say, oh, yes, God sent his son, and he died on the cross for your sins. So they're not denying that. What they're doing is adding an additional element, and you must be circumcised. And there's some of you who came from a background that said, you know, uh, you may be in a church right now that says, yeah, gee, you must believe the gospel. You must believe what someone else has done for you, and then you must be baptized. And some of them would say you have to be baptized in our church. There's a legalism. You're adding something, some requirement for your salvation. There's some who say, you know, yeah, yeah, you got to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you got to quit that alcohol. Now, some of you really do need to quit your alcohol. <laughs> but that's not going to keep you out of heaven. It's just going to keep you out of your marriage, but uh, maybe, or something else, keep you out of your job and keep you out of your money. Some of you need to really, I mean, look, the Wilsons, the double L Wilsons, like they say in McMahon County where I come from, double L is hell. You know, everybody knows Wilson's got a problem. I've got two L's in my name, by the way. I'm not just cussing for the sake of it. But that's what they say in McMahon County about us double L Wilsons. And one reason is everybody knows the double L Wilsons can't hold their liquor. Uh, So I know this. I've seen generations of double L Wilsons, you know, stumbling around at parties. So the thing for me to do is just forget the whole enterprise. You know, this thing of drinking in moderation, I'm afraid, doesn't fit my family very well. So uh, you just do what you need to do. But there's a difference between putting a discipline upon yourself and saying to the whole church that, you know, if you do that, you're going to hell. You can't be saved if you do that or if you're baptized in that church and so on. That is called a legalism. You're being saved in some measure by something that you do or some standard to which you conform. Now, we have lots of standards to which we're to conform. We'll get to that in a moment. But we're not justified by any of them. We're not qualified for heaven by keeping any of those standards. Now, there's another word that's actually more common, I think, in evangelical churches, which most of you belong to. And that would be the word we call moralisms. It's different from legalism. Legalism, which is the heresy that's here, says that you can only be saved by, uh, by uh, conforming to these uh, legal or moral standards. Moralisms say that you really are pleasing to God and you are maintaining your religion and you are, over, you are obligated and the stress is upon the moral standards. That's called moralism. It can be very close to legalism, but it's not quite the same thing. The people in this category, in the moralistic category, would never say that you must do this in order to be saved. They said, no, you don't have to do it to be saved. But you really need to get your life in order. And what they do is they appeal to you based on guilt and fear. Now, guilt and fear is a real thing. It needs to be part of our presentation because guilt and fear are realities. But the major motivation is one of gratitude for the uh, grace of the gospel. That's the antidote for moralism. The antidote for moralism is the gospel. So that when you're presented, for example, if we we were to talk about, uh, let's talk about alcohol. If we were to talk about alcoholism, 
We would appeal to you, wouldn't we? If we were appealing in the gospel, we would talk about what Jesus did for us, that he gave his life as an offering to the Father. And he was certainly sober-minded. As a matter of fact, even when he was on the cross, he was offered some alcohol and he turned it down because he wanted to be very intentional about his sufferings on our behalf. And he had a mission in life. And he didn't want to be inebriated from his mission. He didn't want to be anesthetized from the things that he wanted to suffer for our account. And he wanted to serve his father. He wanted to serve those around him. And frankly, guys, if you've had three drinks every night and you're looped, how are you going to serve anybody? How are you going to pray before you go to bed? How are you going to do anything good except just numb yourself down so that you can brave the difficulties of the, of the evening and the next day? So we would argue from the perspective, you see, of the gospel itself and of what God has done for you and what that calling brings upon your life. So you can see it's, it's very compelling. But I'm not just saying to you, you shouldn't do that. You're wrong when you do that. That's moralism. Now, the church has always fought this. Uh, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon fought it. Spurgeon was the greatest preacher in the English language in the 19th century and into the very early 20th. And he also loved to smoke cigars. And a woman came to him one time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, don't you think it's highly inappropriate that the pastor of our church would be a cigar smoker? And he said, well, he said, I I do believe in moderation. And she said, and what is that? And he said, one at a time. (laughs) On another occasion, the great English, I mean, the great American evangelist, D.L. Moody, made a trip to England. And they were contemporaries. So Moody paid a, paid a visit to Spurgeon. He went to his flat, and he was on the front stoop of the flat, knocked on the door. Spurgeon uh, came to the door with a cigar in his mouth. And D.L. Moody said, Mr. Spurgeon, you're a Christian, and you smoke cigars? And as you know, Moody was a large man. And Spurgeon looked at him and said, Mr. Moody, you're a Christian, and you're fat? <laughs> So whatever it takes to fight moralism, go at it, boys. Uh, Don't let someone put you in a box, put you to shame on issues where you're standing on Jesus Christ alone and you're enjoying the freedom that he gives you to use wisdom to make decisions about your ethical life. Now, that uh, that in no way excuses our behavior when we're in violation of his moral law. And he does chide us, and we need to hear the thunders of the law. But the fundamental context in which we live is a context where God has saved us. He has sent His Son to win for us a righteous standing before God. He has sent His Son to die for us, to remove all of the guilt from our record, and we are free. And it's our moral obligation. If you want to know what your moral obligation is, it is to live in the freedom of the gospel as men who are not condemned and who have no reason to be fearful, and who have no reason to be ashamed, and who have no reason to be guilty, because you're not guilty, because your guilt went completely on Jesus Christ. And all the heresies of this world are going to work to attack and undermine that fundamental freedom and love that you have in Christ. Heresies will arise. And notice in 2a, verse 2, leaders must respond. Now, I know we've talked for 30 minutes. We've only got one and a half verses done. We're going to move faster. Leaders must respond. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Do you see this? Dissension and debate. We like tender-hearted men who are kind and peacemaker, peacemaking. And some of those men also have a tendency to pull away from 
conflict. And I just have to say, gentlemen, there are those moments when the kindest of you and the most tender-hearted of you must move into dissension and debate. When all the cards are on the table, when all the marbles are at stake, you better speak up. As a matter of fact, you better speak up first time the marble gets on the table because by the time all the marbles are on the table, it's usually too late. So when you see a camel putting his nose in the tent, you better talk about the nose because if you don't, you're going to end up with a whole camel. And it takes wise men to see a nose to a camel and know that the camel is right behind that nose and that camel is going to keep coming unless you deal with that camel. And if you live in a tent as a Bedouin, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you're saying, what in the heck is he talking about? But I think you get my point. Start when you see the first instance of it. Don't be surprised by the conflict. And for, for heaven's sakes, don't be indifferent about it. You know, if you go out into a cocktail party, the, one of you, the ones of us with the weakest marriages would respond immediately if some guy comes up and insults our wives. There's no way we're standing for that. I don't care what kind of argument you had before you left the house and got to that party you are going to take a position of defending your wife. You get yourself so connected to Christ and the gospel that you care more about that than you do defending the integrity and the name of your wife and even your own name, which is on her. That's the way you want to be about the gospel. It's so much a part of your life. You're married to Christ. And when he is insulted, it's not always appropriate that you respond verbally, but you certainly respond spiritually on every occasion. When his name is taken through the mud, you can't stand for it. And then there become those moments when you must speak. And Paul and Barnabas knew when those were. People were coming from the outside to talk to the brothers on the inside of the church and leading them astray and leading them away from the gospel. This is a time to to dissent and to debate. Now, that's, first of all, leaders must defend the gospel. Now, in verses uh, 2b through 5, Notice that, or rather 2b and 5, leaders must submit to the church. Leaders must submit to the church. I don't think we find a more prominent leader in the book of Acts other than Jesus himself, than the Apostle Paul. To me, the most prominent leader other than Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. The most prominent leader in the Bible besides God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be Moses and Paul. But notice when Paul gets into dissent and he is not able to bring the church to unity around the doctrine of the gospel, he appeals to the church, the church council. So the strongest leader is a man who is in submission. You know, Truett Cathy, the great Christian founder of Chick-fil-A said, the first thing in order to be a good leader is to be a good follower. And Paul would have no authority if he didn't submit to authority. Hear me again. Paul has no authority if he doesn't submit to authority. He first of all submits to the unique authority of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ as he experienced on the road to Damascus. And he makes it clear, no one gave me this gospel. It came straight from God. He submits to authority. But then he also has human authorities. They're sinful humans. And most of them are not as smart nor able nor courageous as Paul is. But he still submits to them. And every leader here, I don't care who you are, you better know exactly in, to whom you're in submission. It's a very dangerous thing for anybody here not to have a body that is over you. Every CEO needs a board of directors. Every pastor needs a group of elders or leaders in the church 
or in my case, a Presbyterian General Assembly to whom I'm accountable. As one of my elders said to me, maybe you're in this room today. You said, you know, Wilson, everybody needs a boss, including senior ministers. (laughs) Everybody needs one. Leaders must submit to the church, and we're going to see why. Now, first of all, in 2B, look at these words. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That is, good church government is essential to our mission. We cannot carry out the ministry of the gospel here or around the world without good church government. We're going to have to be able to deal with all kinds of dissensions, theological dissensions, behavioral dissensions, ethical dissensions, missional dissensions. We can't carry out the mission of the church unless there's a locus of authority in the church, and it is to be the church. We don't look to some parachurch organization or some uh, 501c3 or some uh, ad hoc group put together to provide authority for the church. We look to the church itself. Now, you'll notice here I've put three forms of church government. You have congregational, Episcopal, and Presbyterian. Congregational form of government, some of you have that in your churches. It's democratic. And ultimately, the final court of appeal, humanly speaking, is the congregation and the, uh, assembled for the purpose of deciding a question. That's similar to a democratic form of government. Then we have the Episcopal form of government, which is similar to a monarchical form of government, where there's a series of authoritative bishops. And the word of Episcopal just comes from the word Episcopos, which means bishop. So you have uh, an individual Bishop, And this would be an Episcopal form of government where the Methodist churches would have that to some degree. And sort of the Roman Catholic Church has an Episcopal form of government. Uh, and that's uh, in the secular realm parallel to a monarchical form of government with a king. And then the Presbyterian form of government where the uh, locus of authority is always in a group. So you don't have any individual who's ruling, but you also don't have the entire congregation. You have representatives who are elected who have certain qualifications of learning and of proven ministry skills and of devotion to the Lord and His church, who have those qualifications. They're qualified and appointed by the people. You see, even the church of Antioch appointed Paul and Barnabas to go on their behalf. So they went as representatives. And so that's, that's called a Presbyterian form of government. The word presbyteros in Greek just means elder. So you can see that Many church denominations even name themselves after their form of government. An elder form of government would be Presbyterians. And you'll notice that it's very similar to the representative form of government that we have in our country. And the reason was you had some Presbyterians and Congregationalists who did it, who had elders in their churches and had representative forms of decision-making, and they put that into practice in the colonies. So those are your options, and you can look at this text, brothers, uh, in case you're wondering if I'm going to give you a long lecture on Presbyterianism which I happen to prefer, obviously. But you can look at this text and you can, you can make an argument, I think, for all three forms of government because you'll see that the church welcomed them here. We've already seen that with the apostles and the elders. It's not that there weren't appointed church leaders, but the whole church uh, in Jerusalem seems to be there. Those of you who are Episcopal, you would say, yeah, and you'll notice when we get to James, he's the one who gives us the answer. James stands up and says, here's the conclusion. And James was known as the bishop of Jerusalem. So those of you who are Episcopal can say, this is our case. Then, of course, you expect me to make the Presbyterian argument that, yes, indeed, the church was there to welcome them. They were the hospitality committee. But who's in the meetings? The apostles and the elders. And James does speak up 
because he is known to be from the right wing. He's known to be a person very concerned about the law himself. Just look at James' epistle in here. He's the brother of Jesus Christ, and he was known as the bishop of, of Jerusalem, but you have some other strong people in here too. So James does rise up as the one who is closest philosophically to the complainants or to the ones who are proposing Judaism. And he arises to speak because when he speaks, they'll listen to him especially. And he says, this is what I think, and he argues for the gospel. And then you'll notice the apostles and the elders then approve what James says. So we don't have a ruling until the apostles and the elders, the presbyters, rule on it. So you can make an argument, gentlemen, uh, no matter who you are. So don't think that I'm trying to exclude your form of government. Here's what my main point. Pick one. Chaos is not a good uh, substitute. And that's what some of your churches have got, chaos. You've got problems arising, all kinds of theological heresies coming in. You have no way of dealing with them because you haven't structured yourselves in a way to deal with real questions that need to be answered by real leaders. Some of you have people in your churches who are suing each other in civil court over personal matters. Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6, you're better off to be defrauded than to shame the gospel by taking two brothers with a family matter, a brotherly churchly matter, that's a family matter, and going to the civil courts to resolve it. If you and your blood brother cannot resolve a personal property issue and you have to take it to the court, what do we say about your family? You are screwed up. You're dysfunctional. You all don't get along very well. And obviously you don't love each other very much because you can't resolve a little thing like a $100,000 difference between you. So you have to go to a judge, pay $50,000 to the lawyers, and go to the judge to squeeze out your $25,000 part of the bargain. You'd be much better off just to be defrauded and forget the whole thing and keep your family name intact. That's the argument. And Paul makes that argument about the church. You'd be far better off to keep your family name intact than to go get your fifty dollars or $100,000 out of the civil court or however, whatever amount it is. Now, I'm not talking about corporate disputes. Corporates aren't Christians. Individuals within the corporations are Christians. And when you get corporations involved, you've got another problem. And we do need the civil courts. I'm not demeaning that at all. I, I believe in the civil courts. I'm thankful for the civil courts. And I encourage you to use the civil courts, but not on family matters. So the reason we do that is the churches are not teaching their people that we here resolve our family matters and we take it seriously. And we have a group of people who are willing to take their time to resolve our family matters and the matters of the theology in our church. If your church doesn't have something like that, please talk to your pastor. Please talk to him and say, I'd be willing to work with you to get our family in order. And notice that these men took this issue very seriously, they traveled a long way on foot to resolve a family matter. Regardless of what government you think you've got, use it. Good church government, secondly, verse 5, allows all sides to present. So when you submit to the church, you don't get a railroad, railroad job going. You don't have to have a bunch of side meetings. You don't have to politic. You don't do everything that you do in the secular realm to win your argument. What you do is you provide justice where there's a hearing and where all sides are heard. The Judaizers were heard here and they could take all the time they needed to present their case because they were presenting an important theological issue. They were wrong, but it was an important theological issue and they need to present their case in the full. 
And the elders and the apostles need to shut up long enough and listen to them. Hear them out. If you're going to render a judgment contrary to what they think, you're not going to convince any of them if you didn't hear them out. And sometimes in churches, we get very impatient with the process. I know those of you who are involved in, in uh, the legal proceedings in civil court, you know your, your clients get very impatient. Some of that is reforms that need to pl- take place in civil courts. But some of it is because process is important. The parties need to be heard out. They need to be given time to present their case. And churches certainly need to do this. So, gentlemen, if you're in leadership, slow down. Be sure and hear all sides. Now, we've seen that leaders must defend the gospel. Leaders must submit to the church. C, verses 3, 4, leaders must never stop ministering. Would you please notice what Paul and Barnabas are doing on the way to church, on the way to Jerusalem? They're ministering everywhere. Just because they've got this major, I mean, the most major ecumenical council in the history of the church, I think, was right here. It was the first one. This major attack upon the gospel And they're thinking about how they're going to present their case. All the way to Jerusalem, they're talking about how they're going to present their case. But as they make their way from from Antioch to Jerusalem, they never stop ministering the gospel. And gentlemen, you don't ever go into 100% defense mode. As soon as you've done that, you're in disobedience to the gospel. The gospel is primarily a proclamation. We're primarily on offense. The defense that we're into is because we're on offense and we're causing all this trouble. We get ourselves into trouble on offense that requires the defense. Don't let yourself be consumed with defense. That is a distortion of the gospel itself. The gospel is good news, and it needs to be proclaimed. And notice that's exactly what these people did. Now, you'll notice a parallel, I think, in Nehemiah chapter 4 when they're building the wall, and the people surrounding Jerusalem don't want them to build the wall, so they threaten the daylights out of them. And they've got to get this wall built or Jerusalem's not going to be a city at all. And Nehemiah is leading the troops. What are they going to do with all these people who are angry out there and they're going to attack Jerusalem? Here's what they do. They put some of the people with swords and scabbards and they put some of the people working on the wall and they guard it all night long. And you'll see in Nehemiah 4, some of the people had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. There's a publication called The Sword and the Trowel. That is, we take the offense with the word and we defend the word at the same time, all the time. So gentlemen, don't get yourselves boxed into a corner. Don't get yourself on the defensive. You're always on the offensive. You're always building the wall of the kingdom of God. Now let's look secondly in verses 6 through 29. Not only must leaders take responsibility to handle their conflicts and take them to the church, the church must take responsibility for our conflicts. It says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And so we've seen in verse 7a, which is uh, a under Roman numeral 2 there, we must listen carefully while others argue. Those in leadership must allow time to present on all parties. We must listen carefully while others argue. But then secondly, you see that Peter stood up and said to them, well, what do you learn here? We must argue carefully while others listen. So Peter listens. It's not that he hadn't heard this argument before, but he's going to be sure. He's going to be considerate and courteous. He wants the full case to get on the table before he responds to it. But then he argues, and he expects others to listen. And you and I must be prepared to make presentations uh, to defend what is right and good in the gospel. Now, notice notice in verses 7b through 12, this is b, we must argue carefully while others listen. 
Peter is risking here his relationships, his reputation. And sometimes I know Presbyterians very well, and we don't like to get into arguments, even important arguments, because we don't want to alienate anybody. They're potential customers. They're potential clients. They're potential parishioners. We don't want to offend them. But Peter rises, and now he's standing for the gospel. Let God be true and every man a liar. We're going to say what is true. We're going to say it respectfully, but we must say it. Now let's notice a couple of things about this argument. First of all, you'll notice in verses 7 through 9 and verse 12, Peter recounts what God has said and what God has done. He just says, look, you're all arguing against what God has already done. You're telling me people have to be circumcised. I've watched as the Holy Spirit fell on people, cleansed them, made them believers, and grafted them into the body of Christ, and they were just as uncircumcised as they were when they started. I've seen this happen before. And furthermore, Peter goes on to speak about uh, how God has cleansed their hearts by faith. And then secondly, in verses 10 and 11, he makes this huge argument. Look especially at these words in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Brothers, if you believe in the grace of God, he's saying, then give the grace of God to them. And if you are saved by grace, so are they. And here's his, his underpinning argument. He's saying that if you believe in the grace of God, you cannot add anything to it. As soon as you add something to it, you've actually diminished the grace of God and canceled it. You've canceled the cross. If you add circumcision or baptism or not drinking or whatever your legalisms are, as soon as you add that, you've removed the cross. The cross has no power anymore. Because what the cross does, it pays for all of our sins. It is our only righteousness before God. That's his argument. Now, look in verses 13 through 21. This will be C on your outline. Then, gentlemen, you got to make a decision. We must make godly judgments. And if you're an elder in the Presbyterian church or a vestryman in the Episcopal church or a deacon or an elder in a Baptist church, you know, if something's being brought to you, you must take responsibility for what's brought to you. You, you can't pass the buck. And if you don't know enough, then you need to call a timeout and go learn something and come back and make a judgment. It's your duty. And we've got to do this on the local level. It's not just these big ecumenical councils. We have things here in this church all the time, right on the local level, right here, where judgments have to be made by the elders. And uh, I, I, I can tell you from personal experience how delightful it is when your brothers who are elders and who are working in the local economy and have reputations and relationships at risk and they rise up and make decisions courageously and wisely and gently, there's nothing more beautiful in the church uh, other than worship uh, than that. We must make godly judgments. Now, first of all, how do we do this? We base our judgments on God's Word. When James gave an answer, he quoted the Scriptures. He quoted uh, from the Old Testament. And this citation here is absolutely wonderful because he's arguing, James is, if you look in verses 16, 17, he's arguing for the inclusion of the Gentiles. And what text does he quote? He quotes this uh, text from, uh, from Amos uh, that speaks of David's fallen tent. David's fallen tent. What is David's fallen tent? It's broken Israel. James is making a remarkable argument. 
he's showing that the Gentiles actually are part of Israel. So he's saying the circumcised parties, one of their fundamental confusions is they think that there's some continuing special status for national Israel. Here, James quotes a text in the Old Testament that's about Israel. And he's saying, he's using, he's using a text that they would probably use for their argument. They were concerned about David's fallen tent and so that God's big plan is to restore Israel. So if you want to be in God's big plan, you've got to come over here in Israel. That would seem like a Pharisaical argument, a Judaizer argument. It's amazing. James takes their text and says, let me show you what the restoration of David's fallen tent is all about. It's Jews and Gentiles. And he argues from the text. Now, if you're dispensationalist, it's not going to make you very happy. But I would say that when you look at the New Testament, I think you're going to find in every single case, in the hundreds of cases where the Old Testament is cited by the apostles and by Jesus Christ, in every case without exception, those promises in the Old Testament are applied to Jews and Gentiles in the church. There is no exception. He never applies, none of the apostles apply a promise in the Old Testament to strictly national Jews, ever, in the entire New Testament. That's my challenge to you. Give me a verse. And here's a classic one where he's saying, brothers, you're misunderstanding the plan of God. He started with an ethnic national people as the stump of the olive tree, but now he's grafting in branches from all over the world. And it's still one olive tree, but it's the church. And you can call it Israel. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, speaking about the church, blessing be upon all Israel. He's talking about the church. Because the church is the fulfillment of what Israel is in the Old Testament. Jews and Gentiles. That's James' argument. Powerful argument from a man known to be really concerned about the law and about the customs. Now, but notice secondly, and this is very important, verses 19 through 21. We not only base our judgments on God's word, but we contextualize our judgments in church's culture. Now, because you'll look at these, these instructions that James gives, and it looks to us rather unusual. We're going we're to challenge Judaism, and then we're going to tell everybody not to eat meat strangled, nor to eat the blood, meat where the blood hasn't been drained. You go, huh? Now, hang on just a minute. You just said no circumcision, and now you're saying don't eat meat offered to idols and don't eat meat that was strangled and don't eat meat that still has the blood in it. And then you throw in this one that seems to make sense about sexual immorality. What's the point here? Okay, in Leviticus 17 and 18, you'll find a series of rules about meat and about sexual morality and and the types of marriages that are forbidden. Here's what James is saying. And you'll notice in the letter it says, you would do well to do this. They don't say, the Lord says, thou shalt not. They say, you would do well to do this. Here's, what, here's the ingenious nature of this judgment. We're going to rule that the grace of the gospel stands alone as the grounds of your salvation. We're also going to administer this in the first century in Europe and Asia where Paul is going from synagogue to synagogue. Notice the language in here where he says, uh, look at verse 21, 
For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in the Sabbath in the synagogues. James is saying the church right now is still being built initially on converted Jews who hold these things dear. And they can't eat at the table with you if you're eating meat offered to idols. And they can't even get to the table with you if you plop down a big pork roast. And they can't eat with you if you're going to serve meat that still has the blood in it. They have to leave the table in their consciences. They don't have to leave the table morally, but in their consciences, they feel they must leave because of Leviticus 17 and 18. So would you like to be brothers with the Jews? Would you like to display the uh, multicultural aspect of the gospel in the church? Would you like to have ethnic groups worshiping together? Would you like to have your children intermarry? Would you like to really live like a family in the church together? Then you would do very well not to offend the consciences of some of your brothers, Gentiles. We're defending the gospel. There's no question about it. But we're also defending the unity of the church and how we're going to get along together. And every body, every church body, every local body has to abide by certain wise standards so that we live together in peace. Not legalisms, not even moralisms. They're what we call concessions. So Gentiles, you feel free to eat all this stuff, but you would do well to concede to your Jewish brothers. Now, sexual immorality is not on that same level, but of these four standards, three of them are concessions. And our time is almost up. We've got one minute to deal with uh, two pages, which we're not going to be able to do. But let's, let's just get, uh, let's end is what we should do. Because you know what? You guys have to go out there and make a lot of money and tithe it on Sunday. And that's what we're trying to do. So we'll pick up here next time. But you can see how important it is then to believe the gospel to proclaim the gospel, to learn the gospel so that you can defend the gospel and you make judgments on the gospel in every realm where you have influence and leadership. The gospel saves and the gospel alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this wonderful occasion in the church brought on by heresy, but then displaying the glory of the good news of the kingdom and the judgment that was made that, that occasion by the elders and the apostles. Please help us, Lord, in our generation to be aware of the heresies that are brought into our churches, to deal with them in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups, in our friendships, and when necessary on those rare occasions, to deal with them as a, as a gathered church or leaders and help us to be careful, considerate, and bold and wise in proclaiming the gospel and defending it in our generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.